Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. When it comes to sex, how smart are you? Do you know what it takes to create a good sex life? If you would like to become more erotically intelligent, this episode is for you and my guest has the answers. Dr. Alexandra Katahakis is a certified sex therapist who serves as the director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles. She is the author of Erotic Intelligence and many other books on sexuality for both professionals and the general public. In this episode, Alex shares information that can help people improve their sex lives in both practical and concrete ways. So join Alex and me as we have a lively and user-friendly conversation on erotic intelligence. Dr. Alexandra Katahakis, who has asked me to call her Alex, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you, Adam. I'm happy to be here. Well, I was mentioning what a fan I am of your work that I've just recently read, uh, actually listened to on Audible, mm. Erotic Intelligence. And in spite of the fact that it was written ostensibly for sex addicts, it really had tips for everybody. And I was wondering, what is healthy sex as you see it? And if you could also contrast it with unhealthy sex. Sure. Well, people ask that question a lot, and it's really an impossible question to answer because everyone defines healthy sex differently for them. And I think we're living in a time now where sex and sexuality is so elastic and fluid and being redefined that each person needs to determine what healthy means for them. And I would say that healthy changes from decade to decade also. Uh, what people do in their 20s is not something they're likely going to be doing in their 40s or 50s. So it, it should really be redefined, I think. And um, I also think one of the things people fail to do is just that, um, that they expect their bodies to perform the way they once did. They expect that they're going to like what they once did because they're not really um, using a critical eye or any self-reflexive capabilities related to what do I like sexually today? I love that idea. And I think about musicians and how they evolve over time that they started off where their first album sounded like this. And over mm -hmm. time, you saw them evolve. And as sexual beings, it sounds like we do the same thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's evident by the way our bodies shift and change and our looks mm -hmm. shift and change. And um, I always say you're not wearing the same jeans you were wearing when you were 20. So why would you expect your sex life to be the way it was when you were 20, when you're 40? Yeah. And obviously, it's not just for procreation because it's evidenced by people postmenopausal, as well as the elderly enjoy very full sex lives very often. I remember when I was working at a geriatric hospital, mm -hmm. one of the most frequently patient education materials handed out was on sexually transmitted infections. Right. <laughs> they have such a high rate of it because they didn't grow up in the you know, AIDS era the way many of us did. So they don't even think about STIs. But yes, I mean, we are living in a time now where people are living longer than they've ever lived before. I mean, even the um, you know, financial advisors and um, insurance companies are using 90 as the new metric. 
Mm-hmm. And so we're endeavoring to have vital physical lives and health and sex lives into the eighth decade of our lives. Yeah. And, and it seems that it can play a real cornerstone in our health in general, which I'll touch on in a minute. I'm wondering, what do you consider unhealthy sex? Well, I think whenever people feel shameful about what they're doing or they're in using sex in an abusive way, or it's dissociative to the extent that you know a person doesn't remember what they did or didn't do, or they're repeating some traumatic pattern that's hurting them even more so, that's when it becomes, quote, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So in, you know, in the language of addiction, if there's unmanageability, uh, if there's a powerlessness around it, if it's secretive, shaming, abusive, then it's probably unhealthy, no matter what we're talking about, whether it's food or the use of alcohol. Totally makes sense. Let's talk about vitality and health and how sex can really play a part in that. What would your mm-hmm. what would you say about that? Well, I think it's the use it or lose it principle. I think when people are having sex and they think about it as additive, that it is a vitality state. I mean, orgasm is a muscle spasm that's releasing a whole host of neurochemicals and having us create deeper connections and attachments with our lovers, partners, whomever we're having sex with. Mm-hmm. And that creates a sense of well-being internally. And we, we also know that people live longer when they have more active sex lives, um, especially men. Um, that men live far longer when they have partners and a sex life. Women tend to be able to get um, the oxytocin that makes mm-hmm. them feel good from conversations with female friends. And we know that females tend to tend and befriend um, and have larger groups of uh, girlfriends, even as they age, than men have of male friends. So it's really essential for our health and our well being and the functioning of our organs. Um, It's good for the prostate. It's good for women's vaginal health as they age. I mean, there's a long list of why it's an anti-aging elixir. Yeah. And it almost feels like if you could put the benefits of a healthy sex life into a pill, it would be a very commonly prescribed pill. But we don't have to do that. We can try to find ways to cultivate sex lives. And for the people who don't have a partner who wish to have a sex life and a rich sex life of their own, what would, your, what would your advice be there? Well, given that we're in the time of COVID right now, it's mm-hmm. hard to experiment with live partners. I think one of the places people get really um, hung up in and what is sort of disturbs our sexuality is when it starts to become so automated or um, pornographic or perverted so that it's just about getting off. Mm-hmm. And so I think when single people can really endeavor to think about sexuality, their personal sexuality, um, and masturbation as a practice, as a spiritual practice. And if you look at the tantric literature, um, if you're practicing tantra, you're practicing what it means to be your own best lover. Mm-hmm. what it means to know your own body, to breathe, um, to create an erotic charge in your own system, um, and how to bring yourself to arousal, bring yourself to orgasm without pornographic material or images. And that doesn't mean that I'm saying that porn is wrong, bad, or dirty. It isn't. It's just there's such an excessive uh, use of it that that starts to send people down a path that's antithetical to connecting with themselves and to other people. 
Wonderful. And I love the idea of tapping into it from a, a real sense, sensual and spiritual space. I'm wondering about, since you mentioned porn, porn, I believe can help and porn can harm. How mm-hmm. does it help and how does it harm? Well, I think it's like food. <laughs> food can be medicine and it can fuel your body and help you build muscles and bones, or it can make you sick. And so it just depends on how you're using the substance or the behaviors or the the stuff, whatever this stuff is. And so it can be an aid for people um, if they're in a romantic relationship or they have a lover. And it's a way to really what it does is it's excitatory and it elevates the excitement because there's novelty being streamed into the system. If that's being done over and over again, it actually creates exhaustion in you know, the neurons in the brain. And so more is not enough. Um, and that's when people start to struggle, especially males with erectile dysfunction. Um, there's a phenomenon called porn-induced erectile dysfunction, which there are lots of scientific articles about, mm-hmm. uh, where people, young men especially, men in their 20s, early 30s, start to lose the capacity for erection because they're excessively exhausting their brains by way of porn. Yeah, and I've actually seen many cases of that in my own practice. It seems to be almost at epidemic levels because porn is so readily available as Mm -hmm. opposed to when I was a kid and you could like share a magazine with a friend. (laughs) But it's not just porn, Adam. I looked at this WAP video yesterday, Cardi B's new video, Uh um, and it is so out there and so intense. And I found it, I mean, I sort of watched it sociologically, like what is this? And I mean, the language is as raunchy as the language that male rappers use. It's pretty out there and pretty destructive. But the women, the way the women are really like uber objectifying their sex and sexuality and even um, seemingly weaponizing it um, and putting themselves on par with men. I think that's the point of her whole message. You know, if you're going to have sex, don't give it away. Make sure you're getting something for it. So there's this intensely transactional um, component to the way sex is being fashioned right now. And this may just have to do with my age and my generation, but mostly I w- that video was just kind of scary to me. Like, wow, you know, certainly like this, my body doesn't look like that. Right. So it sounds like there are at least two things there. One is the transactional nature and the weaponizing of it, yeah. as well as the idea that if I don't match with that sexually, then perhaps I am subpar. For sure, yeah, and um, there is some um, there's something in that that's going to make I think a lot of women feel shame mm. or like they can't measure up, or if they do that, they're going to lose and violate some essential part of themselves. So, if there was a director's cut of that video and you were able to provide commentary, what would you say? I don't know. I mean, I'm almost afraid to talk about it because I think it's probably, you know, very, very hot sociopolitically um, because I can see both sides of it. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, that part of it was sort of oddly um, shocking. Um, And so it makes me look at my attitudes about sex and judgment. And I wasn't disgusted by it or, you know, thinking it should be taken down or anything that extreme. I was just sort of had a feeling of like, whoa, I almost think I need to watch that a couple of times to see what it is exactly I'm looking at. 
Yeah. Uh, because the, the, there's an extremely high level of objectification of the female body and sure. it's being done from a position of power. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you want to have sex with this, it's not even me, it's this. Right. Um, then this is what it's going to require of you. You know, so it really is like a call and response between male and female rappers. Totally. And one of the things I know about you is you've published a great book uh, that is uh, uh, in Norton Press that's used by clinicians. So you're not just here for the general public, but you actually help my community of people who are helping people with sex. And you care about interpersonal neurobiology. And I think that part of why you cause yourself, why you're having a bit of a pause around this, wondering how did this foment in the cultural zeitgeist? Like how, what is this the byproduct of? What types of thoughts preceded this so that Cardi B would come out? And we're not villainizing Cardi B, but this is just, uh, since it's out there, how did this happen? And the idea of interpersonal biology, which is basically the idea of, you know, two brains, two hearts coming together, so to speak. Um, that that's absent from the equation. If you, if we simply oh, yeah. objectify this, you, yeah, you I mean, this, this is like a, a sort of a declaration of mutual usury. Mm. And it's about extreme power and control dynamics. Um, and this meaning female genitalia, that's mm-hmm. what the, this is. And I think if we, you know, go back, I mean, male rappers have been talking about females as hoes, for a very long time. Sure. And sort of the background chant of this whole video is that there are whores in the house. It's this a sub um, sort of vocal that goes on the entire time that there are whores in the house. So what the women are doing is they're owning that, yes, I'm a whore and this is what it's going to cost you. And I'm no joke and I'm not someone you can step on or walk on. So they've kind of flipped it on its head. They've flipped the misogyny on its head. It, it reminds me of the Girls Gone Wild phenomenon mm. in the 90s. I remember that. It was that. sort of like, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be as raunchy as men. I'm going to be one of the guys. Um, right. So I'm going to join in. And um, it's just another iteration of that, only with tons of money. So if you were given a platform for women to really own their sexuality in a way that was authentic, what might it sound like based on, you're not just the average consumer, you're somebody who studied this very deeply, you have a doctorate in this. What What would you say? Well, I think the way that I like to think about this is in terms of male and female energies and not this bifurcation of heterosexual male, female that these are energies that get exchanged between two people. Um, And I think it was uh, Ken Wilber who many, many years ago said that when the feminine serves the masculine and the, no, 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 when the masculine serves the feminine and the feminine worships the masculine, then you have this yin and yang exchange of masculine feminine energies. And you see this exchange in nature. Um, where the feminine worships the masculine. You could say, you know, the flowers are worshiping the sun. Mm. Um, These are, you know, uh, mythologically masculine and feminine energies. Mm -hmm. Um, And the masculine protects the feminine, um, right? So um, we have uh, great care around, um, you know, innocence, like children, small animals being protected 
uh, by this, you know, whether it's a mama bear energy, which is masculine or a mm-hmm. literal male. And that creates and allows for the exchange of um, very, very different energies during sex, where sex can be beautiful and sweet and connected, or it can be raunchy and animalistic, which is really what this video was about. Uh, but there, the feminine was being portrayed as aggressive, solely as aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the the feminine, the softer side of the feminine, the intuition, the fluidity of the feminine was eradicated from this video. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it feels like. The whole thing feels very masculine and aggressive to me on both sides with the male and the female rappers. And the feminine is um, only weaponized by way of, you know, bodies and sex. And I find myself thinking about this as a, um, I mean, the word fluid has come up and uh, like, what if we were to imagine this scenario of objectifying as being a part of the entire spectrum of sexuality between two people Mm. where they were able to hold that as part of the fantasy. Uh, But there was an overarching recognition that we are two spiritual beings, two people with hearts, two non-carbon copies who are coming together and who love each other. And and there's space for acting out that piece as well as a whole host of others. Well, I see it as an integrated whole and that... Um, I think this is where couples get into trouble after they've been together for a long time, whether they're same sex or opposite sex couples, is that they don't objectify each other sexually. They don't see their partner as a sexual being. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you start to see your partner as a householder and a parent and someone who picks up the dry cleaning or is complaining about the bank account. Um, and then it's hard to shift gears and see that person as a lover. Right. And I think that is what is you know, is being called upon us today is this integration of can we see each other in a full spectrum of who we are, as opposed to uh, just these reductive slices. Like, I already Mm -hmm. know you, I already know what you're going to say. I already know how sex is going to be. It starts to become dull and flat. And so objectification without a heart connection is solely on the, uh, what we're calling pornographic side. Um, and a heart connection with no objectification leads to kind of flaccid sex or sex that's not very exciting because if it's just androgyny in the bedroom, there's no heat. <laughs> right. right. You need so the you polarity. Have, you need the excitement. The, it's the paradox that you've totally. got to be able to hold both paradoxes. Um, and I often say it's about being able to say, I love you while I'm fucking you. <laughs> right. Those right. are the polarities that totally. have to be in the mix for it to go well, for it to be erotic. A common misnomer is the word intimate, and mm. they often use it to mean erotic or part or of the sex, erotic life. which is even worse. Or what? Or sex. People use it as a euphemism for sex. Right, intimate for sex. Yeah. Exactly. Like and I'm we wondering haven't been if, intimate. Yeah. Would you be able to just kind of uncouple these ideas of being yeah. intimate versus being erotic? How are these two things perhaps at times one in the can be the same but really we're doing perhaps a a a disservice, disservice. <laughs> a disservice to each word 
by not by not right. uncoupling them. Well, you probably have this experience where couples come in and they say we're not being intimate, and I exactly. think does that mean you're not talking to each other. Like, <laughs> right. What does that mean exactly? So intimacy and sex are not the same thing. I mean, sex at its most base is really fucking. It's mm-hmm. just putting your genitals mm-hmm. together and your mouths and bodies and getting off. Intimacy is about a deep, heartfelt connection. It's about eye contact. It's about knowing in an implicit way, in a way where you feel into the other person, um, where you become vulnerable with each other. And there was a little um, experiment done a number of years ago where um, they put two people together for four minutes, I think, with you know, sitting knee to knee, eyeball to eyeball, who'd been together for years. And the universal experience these couples had was that they fell in love with each other again. <sighs> and the most novel thing we can do is look into our partner's eyes. Uh, because the eyes, as Alan Shore says, are the window to the autonomic nervous system. The eyes are what infuse novelty into the system. And we start to see each other in very different ways when we can get past our self-consciousness or nervousness and laughter and really start to feel this human being sitting opposite you and all of their depth and you know their replication of the universe. And so that is deep, profound intimacy. Sure. And when that intimacy can then be put together with the erotic, which allows for no hang-ups, no self-consciousness, no shame then I think people have the experience of touching the divine or taking a trip around the universe or whatever you want to call it. That's when sex, I think, gets really hot. But I think the portal to the erotic is through this deep, intimate connection. And I think people give up on themselves and each other so quickly today because there's so many other options. It's like, well, I'll just masturbate or look at porn or go have an affair or have sex with my neighbor I don't really have to stay put with myself or my partner. I, I, that's so on point. And I also think the vulnerability component and not being able to talk directly about sex as if we were talking about where we want to go on vacation. Right. We'd be very graphic about where we want to go on vacation and where exactly. we want to stay. Right. And yet it seems that most adults who I see don't speak sex as a second language or as a primary language even. And right. I'm wondering how important is it that we be able to speak frankly about it, have a lexicon for all things sexual, as well as the freedom to talk about it full on? Right. Well, I think when we start to um, teach our children and recognize that sex is yes for procreation, but it's also about pleasure. And that's it. It's about pleasure. Um, and so feeling entitled to one's pleasure is what a lot of people don't feel that way. They're so focused on pleasing their partner. Um, it's very easy to give. Give is the controlling position in the giving-receiving dialectic. It's much harder to receive a gift, a compliment, oral sex, you name it, uh, an orgasm, it's, mu- it's easier to give. And so this process of receiving is about being able to regulate receiving, first of all, to feel entitled to it. And to feel entitled to one's pleasure with a partner means that you're focused on your orgasm, your body, what you like. And to your point, you can communicate it to a partner explicitly. And this is what I call having an adult sexuality. It isn't just about groping in the dark with your partner and trying to figure things out. It's about speaking explicitly about the way your body works. 
what kind of pressure you like, uh, what kind of touch you like, um, positions that you prefer, what your fantasies are. As you say, we speak much more explicitly about going on vacation. We buy books and clothes and get excited about the food, but when it comes to having a sexual experience, people generally just kind of hold their nose and jump in and hope it all works out. And I think it really begins with what we were talking about earlier for the people who are single and don't have, perhaps have a partner is knowing thyself. Right. And I love the word alexithymia. And I know mm-hmm. I'm talking to somebody named Alex right now, but alexithymia, <laughs> yeah. which basically means the inability to articulate one's emotional states and put them into words. I think that there's almost a sexual alexithymia that oh, many so of us great. suffer from, which is the inability to articulate our own uh, sexual desires because we have not allowed ourselves to know what those things are. Adam, I think you just coined a new word. I think we could call it sexothymia. <laughs> I love Seriously. it. Seriously. Sexothymia, that works. Yeah, because yeah, people can... do not um, have a language for, first of all, for what they're feeling in their body. A lot of people don't even know they have a, impulses in their body. And then to be able to talk about what's arousing and then people are so afraid of being judged about what's arousing uh, because we're, we're not, no one's ever really talked about the depth and breadth of fantasies and arousal templates. And some of it is completely unexplainable. Some of it is tied to childhood trauma, but some of it is just inexplicable. Totally. You know, who knows why we like the color green? We just do. Exactly. And to that point, there's so many possible hangups that people have around sex. And yet people come into my office with secrets they've held on to for years thinking they're abnormal. Right. And what they describe is entirely normal. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering to that point, kind of what you were just talking about, what are some common myths that people have that they think they're abnormal and you have to kind of disabuse them of the idea that they are in any way, shape, or form of normal? Well, I mean, that really runs the gamut because normal, as a colleague <laughs> of mine told me when I was an intern, is a setting on a washing machine. <laughs> definition of normal. And so what is normative is arguable, but it's more about recognizing that other people also struggle. So I think for women, you know, we can thank Freud for this, that, you know, women think they are supposed to have vaginal orgasms. And Freud's idea was if you um, didn't, if you had a clitoral orgasm, that was immature and you were hysterical um, and that adult women had vaginal orgasms. But the truth is most adult women don't have vaginal orgasms. And the sole purpose of the clitoris is pleasure. That's the only function it serves, right? You can't pee out of it. You don't ejaculate out of it. You can't have a baby out of it. It's just there for pleasure. So for a lot of women, deconstructing the shame around touching themselves, the feeling of pleasure, um, and recognizing that the way they bring themselves to orgasm or have orgasm is not the same from female to female. Because if you look, if you were to line up a thousand vulvas, they all look different. Mm-hmm. And there are even books. There's a beautiful book called Petals. Um, that is nothing but photographs of women's vulvas. And you see, they are all completely different. So that is one thing is, is when we can just come back to ourselves and say, this is my body. This is how my body works. This is what I know about it. That's when we start to deconstruct the shame around the bodies. And I would say the same is true for males about penile size and 
you know, erections and performance and the expectation. And, you know, this is the double-edged sword of porn. On the one hand, it's really opened our eyes to the myriad of way people have sex. Mm -hmm. And it's also put a lot of pressure on people about how they think they should have sex or what they think the size of their penis should be. Um, and so that becomes the new standard of, right. you know, how genitals are groomed and, um, you know, now, you know, people having surgery to alter their genitals to fit what porn tells us we should look like. For sure. Just back to porn for one second. Are there any directors or lines of pornography that you frequently uh, tell people about? That might be helpful. Well, there are some, you know, female pornographers um, that are making porn for women. Mm -hmm. um, they have more of a plot line. Mm -hmm. They're more relationship oriented, um, and they're less about, you know, the surge we've seen in violence against women, um, which are, you know, pretty egregious images of oh, yeah. choke, sock, choking, and on all of that. Yes. Um, and those videos are predominantly made by men for men, sadly. And that's where we start to see this deep vein of misogyny um, that can be quite terrifying, actually. So um, I think everybody's got to research this themselves. Um, and they've got to look for um, the kind of material that appeals to them and you know, what it is they're wanting to get out of looking at pornography. Discrepancy of desire seems to be a big and common issue. I was wondering, how do you address that when that shows up in your office? Well, that is a huge issue. And I was just reading an article recently about um, the correlation between testosterone and low sexual desire and maladaptive coping mechanisms. Mm. So there is, there, people can have high testosterone and low desire and low testosterone and low desire. So the testosterone is one aspect of it, but more importantly are our defenses against being vulnerable, I think, and being honest about what we like and don't like. And so I think when we see these mismatched desires in couples, it's because there is a modicum of self-deception there on both parties' parts. And then, you know, they are deceiving their partners also. And we know also that self-deception exists to better deceive ourselves um, so that we can deceive other people. It's, it's a, a biological mechanism. Right. Yeah, we learned that. Right. And so I think what we see when somebody has low desire in a relationship, they're not really talking about why that is. And a lot of time it's because they are angry at their partner or... Um, they are maybe avoidant and they have difficulty with the near senses and they're afraid of getting close or too close. Um, or their partner is really not a good lover. They're sort of oafish in bed. Um, and so people don't come right out and say the real reasons. They'll give you a whole host of what I would say are sort of fake reasons, mm -hmm. or doubt reasons. Um, and the high desire partner can look like they've got it all together. You know, they're the ones reading all the books and bringing in the sex toys and trying to get things going. But sometimes that person can be extremely needy um, and they're pushing way too hard on the other person because they need validation or need to feel loved all the time. They don't really desire their partner as much as they're using their partner mm -hmm. to make themselves feel better. Right. So we're Almost. using 
I think as therapists, we have to get to the bottom of what's going on in those two positions when we see that in our treatment rooms. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the insulation that can build up over time around resentment or the things that aren't talked about. And that kind of brings back the idea of intimacy as perhaps a prerequisite for eroticism, that one that the couple inability to really address the neediness of one or the resentment of the other and can really be a, a Trojan horse, no pun intended, for for the this discrepancy of desire. Like what Yeah. Well I think that's true. And you see it sometimes in people that have had like, you know, horrible tragedies um, you know, in their lives. Like they've maybe lost a child. Um, or the one of them got sick with cancer or something happened along the way and they just had to make it through that kind of horrible, um, you know, event with each other. And, you know, some marriages don't even make it through some of those right. events, but the person who is not struggling with that, let's say their partner is the one who has the cancer or, uh, both of them lost a child. They're so busy dealing with getting through the problem and just soldiering on and taking care of business that there's no place for their grief and their loss and their pain and their anger that cancer even showed up in my partner. I mean, cancer is a disgusting disease. It evokes all sorts of anger in people, but how can I be angry at my partner when they're sick? So when that storm has passed and it's behind people, they feel, you know, even ashamed sometimes to even talk about, um, you know, how mad they were at the situation and how abandoned they felt because they have survivor's guilt. So I just want to just wrap it up. Please, no. Speaking the unspeakable that has people's desire falling off when they don't do that, when they keep that inside. Wow. So releasing that genie, speaking the unspeakable could be the way to navigate over that bridge yeah definitely you know to to your point i knew a guy who had uh, a person die uh, of cancer and he couldn't reconcile the idea that he was so angry with this person for having cancer like how could i be angry at this person who had cancer right and it he somaticized. He had back issues for a very long time until he was able to talk about it. Wow. So that what you're describing right now really calls to mind how the body really does keep the score, as Bessel van der Kolk says. That's and right. it really can, if there's resentment or unspoken matter between couples, yeah, it can really act as a wall. Right. And I think this is where people are afraid to be vulnerable. And that's what I mean about deceit is that I'm not really telling you how I really felt about that incident because I don't want to hurt your feelings or I'm afraid you'll leave. But it's that unspeakable that creates this very close in connection with people when they can cry together or be angry together or you know get through the resentment and forgive. That allows a very, very close in experience of intimacy and heart expansion. And it's from that that the eroticism actually deepens. Because what it does is it forces what matters upon us. That this person who I love more than anything in the world, but I'm angry at right now and I can't get close to, 
I'm about to lose. But if I dive into the heart of the matter, we're actually going to get closer. Yeah, I can't help but think of, you know, the idea of the cauldron, uh, the, the idea that we uh, or the, uh, the crucible, the crucible <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. and how important it is to have, be able to have a really strong container for the relationship and how without it, we have this kind of psychic blockage we, right. that manifests sexually in terms of feeling like I don't really want my partner. But the actual answer to the question is I need to for us to have a, 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 an authentic exchange, we both need to be vulnerable. Right. I think Brene Brown gets it right when she says that, there can, that vulnerability is strength and there can be no strength without vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could speak to vulnerability in the context of a healthy, loving sexual relationship. How does it play a part? Well, I think you know, what we're talking about is it's, it's um, counterintuitive to be vulnerable. Deceit and self-deceit is generally how we comport ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so to say, I'm really afraid to tell you this, but I've been mad at you for a long time about this, and that's why I don't want to have sex with you. And so I really need you to hear me. And the other person to be able to actually hear um, and answer, um, and, you know, answer contingently or to um, really validate and acknowledge um, that yes, I can see why you would be feeling that way, as opposed to getting defensive or argumentative, which is where a lot of couples go, and then it just doesn't go anywhere good. Um, so that sort of uh, honesty is what it is. It's an unvarnished honesty and a vulnerability, and it's not honesty about I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honestly tell you what a jerk I think you are. Right. It's an honesty about my own experience, my vulnerability, my fears. Being able to say, I'm afraid you're not going to be turned on by my aging body. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, well, you just want to look at women that are younger, or you're looking at porn all the time and you don't really want me. So you see, that's all defensive at the other, as opposed to, I'm going to unzip and tell you how scared and fragile I actually am. Deceit and self deceit is how we comport ourselves. I just needed to repeat what you just said. Mm-hmm. That is so on point. And I believe that it's one of the main ingredients of swagger. And I think part mm-hmm. of the reason that you took so much issue with the Cardi B video is if this is how we comport ourselves, it is actually based on deceit. It's based on armor. It's based on something right. that is temporary, the youth. And it's based on swagger, which is not intimacy producing. Um, no, it's very transactional. I mean, she's her videos are filled with you know Louis Vuitton bags and bling, and her whole point is if you're going to have sex, girls, don't give it away. Get yeah. something for it. Get a get an expensive bag or an expensive pair of shoes or a new car. And I'm just thinking about how it's so devoid and how hollow it is in terms of the absence of that which humans crave most, which is an authentic connection with another. And I right. think that's I think that's why you take issue with Well, it just sort of, you know, it scares me a little bit as I see the way that in some ways we're becoming more limbic in our culture with mm. the rage that's out there now and right. the usury and um, the solo sexuality, which is what we've seen, you know, in cultures like Japan, where mm. it's mostly a masturbatory culture, birth right. rate is way down. Our birth rate is quite down also. 
Um, and that has to do with economic reasons too, I'm sure. But that, you know, I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. I've got a vibrator. I've got a computer. I've got porn. I just don't need anyone. And um, it leads to a culture of narcissism also and disconnection from our humanity. And so I think of sex and pleasure and love as a way of connecting us to each other, not as, again as a weapon to separate from each other. So what would your message be to today's youth, perhaps even those in high school? How can they cultivate a healthy sexuality in the face of all of these distractions that exist? Well, by dating. You know, kids don't date in high school. Kids are having sex rather late in life um, because of social, not just social media, but, you know, phones and texting and connecting. Um, You know, they're connected all the time, but they're quite disconnected. And so having a a girlfriend or a boyfriend in high school would be an amazing thing to try. Um, And what you hear kids say is that, you know, it feels awkward. It's like, well, yeah, being awkward is part of falling in love with someone and not knowing where to put your hands and being uncomfortable. But that's how we grow is by being uncomfortable. It's how you learn math. Um, you can't learn math unless you're uncomfortable. Yeah, we have to, we have to progress through the stages of learning, which are really awkward. I, I yeah. often say that the only reason I speak Japanese is because I was, I was say, willing to look like an idiot. Right. <laughs> I, Japanese. So you're willing to humiliate yourself. Totally. Repeatedly. <laughs> right. Um, and that is a, a, an intricate or an integral part of learning is that willingness to humiliate ourselves. One of the great public services was given by Tina Fey in 30 Rock. And she was perpetually awkward. And she just kind of desensitized people from the, she, she made it normal. And yeah. there's something so important about tolerating awkwardness. I love that. It is. Um, but, but you really do hear young people saying they want to avoid being awkward. And we have to, and I think awkward, being able to tolerate awkwardness mm-hmm. and of having almost an imaginary you know, coach on our shoulder, almost like, uh, you know, an Obi-Wan Kenobi or some, yeah. you know, having Oprah on the other side and just knowing that, you know, somebody okay. to kind of midwife us through the awkwardness. Right. Uh, that's so but I think, I think in a way that's the job of parents, instead of right. being so allergic to our teenagers having sex and, you know, experimenting and dating, it's knowing that when your kid goes through puberty, they're going to feel sexual. That is nature's way. These are biological directives. Your kids are going to be sexual at 14. Do you want them looking at hardcore porn or do you want them dating somebody real and alive? Do you want them touching a real breast or looking at unbelievably fake breasts so that real breasts are just like, eh, no, not interested? Um, and, but parents are so afraid of their children's sexuality. And so if parents were the Obi-Wan Kenobi or the Oprah, that they were <laughs> actually stewarding their children into adult sexuality, we would be seeing something different. I love that. Well, my last question for you is if you could magically confer on all humanity one skill or one awareness as it relates to sex, what would it be? And what do you think the effect on the individual as well as society as a whole would be? Well, that's a very big and multi It's <laughs> a big Adam. one. Um, I really think it comes back to more and more and more, it comes back to ourselves. That we have this idea that someone else is going to make us happy. 
someone else is going to make us feel sexually wowed. And when we really start to understand what it truly means to love yourself, and I really think this is a developmental task, I don't think we know what that means until we're really in our 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and that, that's about taking care of oneself, what you ingest, who you have sex with, what sort of things you put, you know, the wear and tear you put your body through, what you eat. All of it has to do with self-love. And so when you treat yourself like a king or a queen, and I don't mean this in a narcissistic, self-centered way, uh, when you treat yourself like your body is your temple, um, that you are a precious human being, why would you treat that like garbage then? Why would you just give it to anybody or lend it to anyone? You wouldn't lend your car to anyone. So why lend your body to someone? you know, that's going to abuse it or climb the curb with it or scrape your wheels. Um, why not treat your body the way that you treat the things that you most value in life? And it's not just the body. It's the body, mind, psyche, soul. It's all integrated. Hmm. And I think if we were start to see sex as a form of pleasure, something that we delight in, and we treat ourselves with that kind of reverence, and we give ourselves to an other with that sort of agreement, then we would be making a lot more love and a lot less war. I love that. So me in my best life is connecting with you in your best life. Yeah, right. And that, that is the prayer of namaste. I was going right? there too. <laughs> yeah. And or Martin Buber, I am thou, yes. just recognizing the holiness within people. Right. Oh, Alex, I'm so grateful to you for sharing your wisdom with my listeners. And uh, I know you're doing really good stuff in the world. It's my belief that if people had better sex lives, that there'd be a lot less road rage, a lot more yeah. kindness everywhere. Exactly, right. And uh, I think that you're contributing in helping that to become a reality. So I thank oh, you. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for having me on your show. I think it's a great show. Um, and likewise, I think this is a wonderful service that you're offering to everyone. Right on. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.